It's pretty little grown men. Hello. Hi, Dave. Hey, Dom. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. Hello, everybody, listeners. It's, it's been a little while. Yeah. We took a little holiday time off, and uh, it's an exciting week because it's the week before Pretty Little Liars comes back. <laughs> I know. Um, so we're going to fill up some more time with non-Pretty Little Liars stuff. <laughs> Actually, one thing we can quickly talk about, um, I don't know if you've listened to it, but I did listen to Lucy Hale's, I don't know, if is it her debut? Her debut album? Her country, yeah. Yeah, her country debut. I listened to it. Um uh, it was a country album. <laughs> what, what did you think of it? It, uh, it w- wasn't exactly, okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll start by saying I'm not the right audience for this type of country music, mm-hmm. which is very like radio ready pop country music. Um, all of the ingredients seem to be there. You know, there's uh, some some twanginess, some good slide guitar, um, an accent, right? Uh, and uh, a very passable duet with another male country singer of I don't know who he is, but surely somebody important. There is one song where they duet and um, and. Uh, this is a trope that I don't understand in most country songs. Actually, it's a, it's a it's a lyrical trope where um the lyric that he sings is they're they're talking about remembering each other this one night. I don't know if it's because they've been separated or something, but uh he says baby it's you I remember with your red dress on dancing in the moonlight uh till the break of dawn. And this is something I think that you hear in a lot of country music where there's a lot of women dancing in dresses in the moonlight all night long. Right. And I have trouble believing that they are literally dancing all night long. Right. I in mean, the moonlight. I, I think this is like the country version of YOLO. You know, <laughs> you know how there were all these songs coming out in the last few years, less so in the last two, two or three, but all these songs that were like, we're going to go to the club. We're going to dance all night. We're going to pretend it's our last night on earth. Mm-hmm. We could die, whatever. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Right. And I think this is sort of like the country version of that of the like we're gonna go out and sit in the back of your car or the back of your truck right you know and just look at the stars and it's like it's going to the club except it's the nashville club which is like red on solo a, cup. on a farm yeah 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 exactly, exactly um yeah and there's also there's also something uh i mean again not the right audience not a whole ton of experience but there just does seem to be some sort of very traditional uh, I don't know how to describe it, but like some built-in misogyny where it's like basically the guy just like sits in his truck drinking out of his solo cup, watching the woman dance in the moonlight. And it's very like, vo- it's it's kind of creepy and voyeuristic, but it's supposed to be romantic. Right. Um, so that's that one. There's no dance. Right. No dancing you just, allowed. You just watch the women. You just ogle them in their right. red dress. Um, the other uh, The other song that kind of... There's a few catchy songs on it. Um, the other song that kind of bothered me was a song about how Lucy Hale learned all about love by sitting in the back seat of her car and watching her parents on car on road trips. And it's a very 
it 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 didn't sit well with me because it's a very idealistic and simple way of of like viewing long-term monogamy and it's were, were you expecting Joni Mitchell? I was I mean not the it's a it's a what was it was it let me rephrase this was it um below the level that you would expect from a radio destined Nashville country song? Uh maybe there's no conflict in it. It's just basically just like love is easy and I learned about it by watching my parents and like they were holding hands forever until the end of time. It's it felt very like upper middle class safe love. Like uh-huh. no there's no conflict in our life that would ever, you know, lead us to get into a fight and And it wasn't like a blue collar like there was no hint of, you know, daddy worked at the factory and he used to work those long shifts and mama no. was at home with the babies kind of thing. No. And I guess I appreciate that about it, which is that um, it's someone like Lucy Hale can't pretend that she is living a blue collar existence. Right. Um, and so there is no pretending. Uh, the only thing that is like, kind of mournful or maybe a little um vulnerable on the album is a song i think it's called nervous girls and it's basically just about how i'm a nervous girl we're all the same we're all nervous girls we're all girls in high school and it's like i may look confident and i may look like i know what's going on but i don't i'm just a nervous girl and that's the whole song. Right. Um, it's pretty gross. <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> I listened to the whole album. I'm proud of you. More than more than once, actually. Because um, I had to show Rebecca a few songs. But uh, it's... I mean, you know, if she recorded a whole album, it sounds pretty good as far as, like, the actual sound quality. It's uh, It's a country album. So, and I'm sure that she'll tour with it and I'm, you know it's full of like we were saying before like it's full of pictures of her in fields in her daisy dukes looking all country authentic yeah. authentic yes so so ambiguously aged also it's like <laughs> are you 16 or are you 35 i don't okay. I can't tell so would you give it a gentle recommendation um I would say that if you enjoy watching country music television, then yes, you would enjoy this album. Okay. If you if if you look forward to the country music television awards, then I which I'm sure that she'll get nominated for some, then I would imagine that you would enjoy this album. Fair enough. Well, we do have a couple of pop culture uh, non-PLL-related pop-cultural uh, items to discuss this week. Mm-hmm. Star Wars is one. Yeah. Uh, the Hateful Eight is the other. Both both movies that maybe some of you have seen already. Probably everyone and their and their mother and their grandpa saw Star Wars already. Um, but Hateful Eight hasn't been out as long. And and the most anticipated holiday movie of the year, Alvin and the Chipmunks Four. The Road Chip. Is that a real movie? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god. It came out the same day as Star Wars. Oh man, I thought the only other movie was the um, Tina Fey Amy Poehler movie. 
sisters. Right. Nope, they were both up against Alvin and the Chipmunks for Road Chip. That's a, wow. I'm amazed that I somehow didn't know that existed. Yeah, I'm out of touch, man. I I mean I don't know whether to commend you or chastise you. I mean, I feel bad. I feel like I should even even just to like not go to it ever. I'd like to know that that happened. Remember when we were talking about Transformers and we we're basically saying like. You know, as long as these movies make money, which they do, they will just continue to be made. Trans fivers, trans and trans, trans sixers. Six <laughs> uh, which, by the way, it was just announced that Michael Bay is going to come back to direct. Trans fivers. Um, trans fivers. God, I hope they call it that. <laughs> have I ever have I ever said on this podcast what I think that Fast and Furious Eight should be called? No. It should be called F Eight. So you just be called fate. That's good. I think that's good. Yeah, I think so. Um, and it can be about them going to heaven after a horrible car accident. Oh God! I wonder what the they didn't they didn't officially kill him off in the in. I mean, you know, R.I.P. Uh, Paul Walker, but they didn't officially kill him off. And right, just spiritually. Yeah, they just said goodbye. Um, Wiz Khalifa got nominated for a Grammy for that song. It's a pretty good song, except for Is the it? parts with Liz Khalifa on oh, it. Oh, yeah. I don't I know like who the else. chorus. Who sings in that song? Uh, I think it's Charlie Puth. Charlie Puth. Puth? I don't oh, know. like P-U-T-H? Yes. Oh. Huh. Well, good for them. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, I haven't seen Elvin and the Chipmunks before. But they're going to keep making those. I'm surprised that they that those are making money. K- apparently kids. Kids, man. They'll go see anything. Yeah, animated chipmunks. I guess if they're remotely cute, and they probably introduced uh, Alvin, Simon, and Theodore's uh, female counterparts, the chipettes. So, that's right, the or, chipettes. or whatever. I can't remember. These are all. There was a chipmunks animated movie when I was a kid, mm-hmm. uh, which I remember watching multiple times and really enjoying. Do you remember when they would make? And these are these are kids shows, by the way. When they would make. Um, uh, obviously these anthropomorphic animals uh, and they would denote uh, a woman who is an animal by giving them like tuftier chest fur and like eyeshadow and making them a little too sexy for like kids. Just a little. Yeah. Remember uh, Lola Bunny from Space Jam? No. That was a, that was a little too grossly sexual for a cartoon character. I'm not talking about like like uh Jessica Rabbit from from uh Who Framed Robert Roger Rabbit. Like Space Jam was squarely supposed to be a kids movie and it's gross how many animators uh thought that that's okay to like entice like a 10-year-old boy to be attracted to like a a sexy rabbit. A sexy animated a hot rabbit. Bunny. <laughs> uh, yeah, Bugs 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 lost his his mind over Lola Bunny. I think they were boyfriend and girlfriend by the the, the time that they beat the Monstars. I honestly don't remember. I just I remember seeing it. I know that Michael Jordan is in it, and he plays basketball. Yes, I revisited it about a year ago. Um, it it does not live up to time. <laughs> okay. Time time is done done a number on Space Jam. Well, speaking of the power of time. Mm-hmm. And nostalgia, Star Wars. Star Wars. Um, so we, so Dave's seen it twice. Uh, Dave and uh, me, Dave and, and Hillary went and saw it. Um, 
uh, the night that it came out. Yeah. Well, we didn't go, we should say we didn't go to like the Thursday midnight or right. super early screenings. Um, but there were, we, I waited in line for about three hours. Yeah. Uh, we got there about four doors opened at six the movie was at seven and we were in line with, uh, you know, all kinds of people you had, adults just kind of doing their thing. You had little kids in costumes uh, with their parents and so on. There was one kid wearing a Batman costume, which I thought was very funny. I was like, who who allowed this? Who thought this was a good idea? The kid was just like, listen, I got to wear something. Mm-hmm. I don't have anything else. Just let me wear the damn costume. Um, but I yeah, I brought my lightsaber. Even, but you know what? We saw it again on Christmas Day because uh, we were just walking around looking for something to do. Mm. And there was a big line for it, and it the uh, we came in the morning to get tickets because we were just walking down the street and yeah. walked by the theater, and the afternoon screening sold out, and so we had to come back for the seven oh, o'clock wow. one, and we, you know came out at like five thirty and waited yeah. an hour and a half and got good seats again, but you know even a week later on the holiday weekend people were like yes let's go see Star Wars and let's get there early, well it's it's shattered, uh, or it's on its way to beat Titanic. No, Avatar, to beat Avatar. Yeah, beat Titanic. Um, yeah, so it's on its way to beat uh, James Cameron's other box office behemoth. Um, so uh, I think that we can start by saying we both loved it, but there's a lot of things about it that I've... Because I've thought about it pretty incessantly since. Um, I've tried to avoid think pieces because I just... They're all bad. Yeah, all of them I'm, are bad. I wrote one, I mean, which you which you liked, but... Yeah. But I mean, it was very. But it was about. It was about going to. It was the nostalgia of it. It wasn't. You weren't criticizing it. Right. I mean, the thing is, I wanted to write about just the experience of going to the theater because I don't think this is the kind of movie where you can't think about it as just an isolated movie like mm-hmm. that could be watched on your phone or that could be watched in any scenario yeah. like going to the theater on opening night and being in a room full of cheering people it's like going to see a band versus sitting at home and listening to the record right you know yeah and we can definitely talk about it on the level of on the analytical level of mm-hmm. like what what is this as a movie but i thought the theater going experience and just being in a room of people excited to see what looked and breathed like a star Wars movie that was incredibly, uh, powerful and emotional. And I had a unbelievable experience in the movie theater. Yeah. Just, just on that level. Oh yeah. And I mean, I was right there with everybody. I mean, you just, you, you can't, you can't really resist, nor do you want to the urge to clap, to cheer, to, uh, you know, um, should we say spoiler alert? Yeah, there's going to be a lot of spoilers. Yeah, so yeah, spoiler alert. Uh, but you know, chances are you've seen it by now. But like, you know, when Han Solo gets killed, like right. you just want to like, no. Yeah, it's this <laughs> it's this heavy moment. And one of my one of my little qualms after the first viewing was that the movie was almost too joyful. Uh, it, it was almost too exuberant because it wants you to feel the wonder and the excitement of a Star yeah. Wars movie yeah. that looks and sounds and feels like a Star Wars movie, which the prequels did not. Uh, right. And so there are a couple scenes. Uh, there's a, especially in the beginning where the first time I saw um, Finn and Poe get in the TIE fighter and zipping around and um, Finn shoots a cannon out and he's like, yeah, I did it. <laughs> and this is a guy who didn't want to be shooting anything yeah. five minutes ago. Right. 
And all of a sudden he's like pumping his fist and getting worked up. And the first time I saw it, I was like, man, this is maybe too identifying with the audience, yeah. you know? Um, and then the second time I saw it, it felt, it felt okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't bugged by it. I think one thing that it, that it did. And, you know, I think that there's, if you really want to get into, um, wait, how am I say this? So one thing that, uh, it did is it it really encouraged me to look back and think about my love for the original movies because the prequels don't do that because they're they don't feel like star wars movies right they i mean they're just they're terrible movies i another thing is i don't want to read anything pieces about um uh like we should reassess our the value of the prequels you know like let's think about what george lucas intended um, no, <laughs> it, no, like, I don't. I, I hate this reassessing. I mean, this is like one of the weird things about culture now, right? Is that like we have access to everything, and we need to flood the internet with content all the time. Yep. And so there's all this like ten year anniversary, or why this random thing is different than you thought it was, you right. know? Because it's on Netflix now. Yeah. And in a way, I think part of me is like, yes, let's talk about all these old things because everything old is new to someone mm-hmm. and it's exciting for us to look back at these things. Yeah. But then part of me is like, when it's, when it, let me put it this way, when it's something I disagree with, when it's something where it's like <laughs> the science was settled, you know, like talking about um, like animal collective albums in the 2000s. And now like among certain music writers, there's like this weird backlashy feeling of like, maybe they weren't actually that good or that important, you know? And I see a lot of writers who lived through like the blogosphere era of music writing 10 years ago, who are really quick to put down certain things that kind of flamed out like a band, like clap your hands, say, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, just because they're not important now does not mean they weren't super important in 2005. Like the history, like I was there, it was real, you know, (laughs) like you can't retroactively say, Oh, it, it didn't matter. We were wrong. Like that's not how hit. That's like, that's not how things work, you know? So in certain cases I am really, I get really aggrieved by um, people trying to explain I know better than everyone who was there. And this was actually, this is actually a secret classic. And sometimes it is, but not the Star Wars prequels. Those were really bad. No, and I don't I don't understand why anyone feels the need to defend them. They are difficult to sit through. They're overlong. They're poorly written. They're boring as shit. I mean, I just they're not good movies, period. Right. And I don't I don't want to reassess my opinion because I remember what it was like to sit through those movies. Uh as an older person, I mean, I've watched the the original Star Wars movies countless times in different tons of different versions. I remember what it's like to see those movies. I remember what it's like to see the prequels. And w- watching the prequels is disappointing and boring. Right. They're, um, they're terrible movies. Yeah. So the prequels never helped me uh, or encouraged me to reassess my love and my engagement with the originals. Uh, the Force Awakens did, and in a really interesting way. Um, partly because uh, of that experience of watching in the theater, which is it's very much like reliving the thrill of falling in love with the original movies again, where there is that sort of um, like indescribable glee of watching something that 
is sort of like an equalizer, I guess, where everyone in the audience is really into it. And, right. And everyone is excited. And, and most people who saw it beforehand didn't spoil it, almost as like a duty to the movie and to the people who don't want to be spoiled. And that's hard to do nowadays. Um, and I also, I think that like, I was much more critical of it because that's who I am now. But the things that I was critical about, not only do I see them in the earlier movies, but I'm just, it almost doesn't matter to me. Right. I like, there's a lot of plot holes in that movie. And there's a lot of things that I think I would criticize more in other movies. But the sheer glee of watching the film just totally demolishes all of those criticisms pretty handily. Um, and we could talk a lot. The, the one thing that I think is really interesting to talk about, not in any critical way, but I think is really interesting is, um, you know, my, my favorite, and I, I think a lot of people would agree with me, but my favorite of the original three is Empire Strikes Back. Mm. Um, probably because out of all three of those, it even when I watched it as I was younger, it gave me the most emotional response when Luke finds out that Darth Vader is his father. That whole scene is just like a really emotionally resonant scene. Um, but watching The Empire Strikes Back again, uh, which I did like a month ago, um, there's a lot of things that aren't very good good story construction no like right no no tell me like um i maybe not even i don't even know if i'd say not very good story construction but i'd say like just not good for character building where uh things everything in that movie is just uh, especially with uh the you know because the story splits between luke who goes to Dagobah and and trains with Yoda, and then Leia and Han and Chewie and the droids, um, or or C three PO, uh, basically just trying to escape the Empire. Um, everything that happens to Luke or to Han and Leia is just, just like it's just they're they're just kind of reacting to things. They're not really going through any any like character building they're just kind of like just escaping and then just waiting around and then escaping again and waiting around right it's just plotting there's no there's no agency on their part um and i to the point where it's just like at least luke is like actively doing something like he's trying to build himself he's training um whereas I think the more I think about it, I think the Han and Leia storyline is a little weak, but that doesn't make me love the movie any less really. And I felt that a little bit with, uh, the force awakens in that, um, a lot of stuff that happens to the characters just happens to them. And it's extremely coincidental. It's like, I mean, from Ray and Finn finding the millennium Falcon to Han finding the Millennium Falcon again. It's just like... Oh, yeah. I mean, that's like a huge... I didn't even think about that as... I mean, that's like sort of this obvious, ridiculous thing. Well, right. right? And I, like, it's it's ridiculous, and I don't mind it. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I don't want to criticize it, but it, I, I, it did... 
it did make me think about the Empire Strikes Back, where there's no agency in it. It's just things happening to them. Right. As I opposed mean, that's to like... them them actively like doing things right making things happen yeah yeah that i mean yeah you could certainly point that out if you were someone watching this movie with no warm feelings towards star wars you could watch that and and have say very uncharitable things about the convenience of that right uh randomly showing up on this backwater planet to bring this character back into the storyline yeah um i guess the the on the second viewing the part of the movie that felt wobbly to me was the middle section I think the first half hour or so, um, especially like the camera choices and uh, just the way things are laid out, it's really excellent. Like that Mm -hmm. shot of BB-8 where the camera pops up on him and refocuses and then he like zips back into the sand. Like it's just so beautiful and Mm -hmm. fun to watch. And, you know, of course, all the shots of um, the early shots of Ray where she's going through this old ship and yeah. you know you have that couple big shots of her against the shadow or the silhouette of it and you know it's really just stunning to watch mm-hmm. um and i think the same thing with the last chunk of the movie um there's that there's so many shots where it's like this could be a poster like this is just so nice yeah. where she and um uh kylo ren are separated by the planet cracking apart yeah and you just had the light coming from her blade and it's just like the stunning like clearly this um, shot that had been, you know, prepared and someone had drawn it and they were like, you know, envisioned from an early portion right. of the movie, you know, it didn't just happen. Right. And I think that like, that's that kind of um, visual splendor overcomes a lot of, I don't know. I, I don't know what to call them. Plot holes, inconsistencies. Well, so I do, I do want to say just my one real plot grievance is um, as soon as you get into the difference between the resistance and the Republic mm-hmm. and the, the star killer base, then it starts to get really messy for me because yeah. you have the, on one level you have, okay, uh, the first order, the remnants of the empire decided two death stars didn't work out. Let's build a really, really big one, <laughs> which is like on one level, it's like the classic comic book supervillain thing to do right. is like, well, let's just make it bigger yeah. and just like be dumb instead of trying something new, right. you know? So on that, on that level, it's like sort of funny and like obvious, uh-huh. but on the other level of like, this is really dumb. <laughs> like, yeah. why would they do that? And just being super reminiscent to a point, to a fault, you know? Mm-hmm of a new hope and of the original trilogy of like, we're going to do this thing again. But what really bothered me is they fire their death laser. They blow up a planet or a a whole star system. Yeah. And then the emotion of that scene, which, you know, should be like heavy as hell. You just murdered billions of people. Right. And it's like, this has been in the, in the works for 20 years or however long they say we've been charging this up for 20 years, you know, whatever. Uh, or at least 30 years since the last movie, like presumably there's been no genocidal attack right. during this three decades that we haven't seen everybody. Yeah. Right. So it should be like a pretty big fucking deal. And yet the next scene is the big Han and Leia reunion. So it, <laughs> so it undercuts all the emotional weight. Yeah. It just zips right from like uh, planetary genocide. Ooh, romantic fuzzies, you know? Yeah. And it's like a really, it really bothered me because they don't tell us anything about the Republic 
or why we need a resistance and a republic. Mm -hmm. You know, like, why are there still rebels if these, like, are we supposed to, I guess we're supposed to believe that the First Order is just like another country, essentially, you know, where you just can have like different sort of political bodies that exist in the universe and, or in the galaxy, and they don't have to get along necessarily. Right. Why aren't the republic, it's like, it's like the resistance feels the need to be to be hiding in the shadows although everyone knows that they exist anyway like it was and not that i want the movie to like give me this whole spiel explaining the politics of the era you know but like but it also wants to well yeah i mean you're bouncing 30 years ahead uh you're not really explaining what's going on and which like is usually fine and is usually my preference in these types of movies like Mm -hmm. don't give me the origin story just just do it but it it just felt really um it just felt like there's this huge emotional ball that needs to get dropped or that needs to be held you know and it gets dropped in favor of the emotional cues of the nostalgia factor yeah so that that bugged me a lot, you know. I, I felt like it Actually really didn't was notice not. That. That's, I, well, yeah. so there, yeah, there you go. I mean, it's like you're not even thinking about it right. as a fan. You're just like, oh, Hanalea, great, keep the movie moving. Right. Um, but I don't know. It was just like too repetitious of the original trilogy without any of the emotional weight. I felt like. Although uh, watching um, A New Hope again, when they blow up Alderaan, like Leia's, you know, sad about it, but. There is no really emotional weight there. Like she gets there, over it pretty quickly. Isn't there Obi Wan saying, "I felt a great disturbance in the Force, millions of lives extinguished, or something like that"? Yeah, but like Leia, like her her whole world was just destroyed, and you know she's by like I mean, granted, like she's um, I mean, this is you know, like we're getting a little picky, but granted, she's like she's supposed to be a military person. So she's got a job to do as the leader of the rebels, and that is to uh, make sure that the Death Star is destroyed. But also her whole family and and life was just exploded, and a half an hour later she's, like, making fun of Chewbacca. You know, like, it's... You don't really feel that emotional weight when Alderaan is destroyed. Right. Well, I mean, it's not... You know, these movies are supposed to be giddy romps right. in a way. I mean, they're supposed to be space operas where it's not supposed to be like the Schindler's List of sci-fi movies. So that's that, true. That, that's always been the tone. Uh, I just I just felt I like guess that's true, yeah. I just felt like it was a little underserved much. And it, it's like not telling us about that stuff, even in like two sentences, um, mm-hmm. doesn't do us. It's like it doesn't create any interesting mystery like. Not knowing where Luke is is interesting. Not knowing where Ray came from and seeing this crazy flashback, that's interesting. Like, yeah. I don't need to be told what her deal is. I'm happy to wait for the next movie. Like, I don't right. really need to spend any time theorizing about it. I don't care. Like, yeah. the movies will tell me, and that's exciting. Like, <laughs> I'm ready for the movies to let me know what's going on. I would have loved to see, you know, they mentioned the Knights of Ren. I would love to see the actual Knights of Ren. Right. I mean, it's it's clearly set up in a way where presumably in the next movie we'll get the backstory on that and we'll understand what drove Kylo to the dark side. So, you know, the one thing, if we're talking about things that, that like bother us, the stuff that I mentioned didn't really bother me that much. The only thing that really bothered me is um, Kylo Ren is a really inconsistent character, not because he's a young person 
who's dealing with all of his emo feelings. It's he's incredibly powerful one moment and then really weak the next. And I I disagree, but keep going. Okay. Well, the, maybe I mean this. Is, I think this is a good debate. Okay. I I guess partly is you know I I understand that that what is driving him to the dark side and what encourages uh, a a young Padawan learner to embrace the dark side is being unable to control anger and fear and hatred. And he displays all of those uh, qualities. Not to mention his infatuation with uh, his, his grandpa, his grandpa, Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that, okay, I guess the one, the one thing where I, where I look and I see weakness uh, where I think that he should just be a, a very quick scene is when he's fighting Finn with the lightsaber. And it's like, this dude is a basically a stormtrooper janitor that just picked up a lightsaber for the first time. And you can't just like cut his fucking head off real quick. Like you can't just like end him easily. I understand fighting, fighting Ray and that sure. being difficult. But the whole the the fighting the Finn part, I just just like, bro, just end him. Like, what is okay? What are you doing? Let's let's get into this because I think the movie sets this up in a very uh, detailed way. Okay. So the whole movie, we see Chewbacca with this bowcaster gun. Yeah. And on multiple occasions, not just one, like the movie makes it unavoidable to notice this happening. Han is like, Chewie, let me try that gun, and he zaps a couple guys and just blows this huge hole. You know. Uh, it just creates this huge explosion. So it's this powerful weapon. Wait, side note, though. Side note. You're telling me that in 30 years, Han has never once tried out Chewie's bowcaster? Well, right. I mean, this is why it's so exaggeratory and borderline silly. Okay. Is Han's like, like, they didn't say, oh, you got this gun last week. Let me check it out. It's like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is just Chewie's laser gun. Like, you've never seen it before. Why are you so weirdly? So, right. so the point, it's it stands out like a sore, a sore thumb. Mm-hmm. There's a couple points where Han shoots it, and he's like, oh, this thing's crazy. Yeah. So the first thing Chewbacca does after Han dies is he shoots Kylo Ren. Mm-hmm. And Ren just takes the hit, and he doesn't go flying. He doesn't explode off the ledge. He takes the hit, drops to a knee. And he holds himself together. Yeah. And so I think it's very fair to say he's using his force powers uh, in a very controlled way to, you know, not be dead. Oh, okay. Like to not pass out because That's he's not wearing any, you know, he's wearing his armor or whatever. But obviously that doesn't do any good for the stormtroopers right. who got blasted with this crazy gun. Right. Um, and also, why doesn't everyone have a crazy gun anyway? It's yeah. So it's, it's actually it's, a good it's point. A MacGuffin, right. It's a total MacGuffin yeah. in yeah. a way. It's a very, it's a silly, like, it's a silly item to be in the movie. So basically, like, he's really fucked up when he's fighting Finn. And you see him twice in that fight. Uh, before they start fighting, he he's, like, patting his, slapping his side, and you see blood on the snow. Ray notices blood on the snow. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a clear shot of it. Uh, and he's fighting Finn, and then he does the same thing. He stops in the middle, and he's, like irritated at at the pain he's feeling uh which is when finn starts fighting him again but he does pretty much beat the shit out of finn like in that fight he's clearly in the offensive the whole time finn lands like one decent shot on him otherwise he's playing defense and then he gets knocked out yeah so i think 
if you were paying attention along the way, or or if I, for me, paying paying attention and looking for this stuff, I think the movie goes out of its way to support that fight. And you also have an earlier fight where Finn uses the lightsaber. So clearly he's had some sort of sword hand-to-hand training. Yeah. Because um, we see him fighting the other stormtrooper with it. Yeah, stormtroopers and they're they're like billy clubs now. And the other they're electro billy clubs, right? Which is like that scene exists to establish that Finn has had some hand to hand training. You know, yeah, yeah. like the movie goes out of its way to set set up the final confrontation. I do. I understand. Also have... I, agree. I I see what you're saying. I think that's. I think that what you just said, you've won me over and you've convinced me. But I also just think, like, then why why have Finn fight Kylo Ren at all? Like, why? Because it's interest. Because it's interesting. Because okay. it's right. fun. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, all these sorts of there. I don't even want to entertain the like, um, Ray is too heroic debate mm-hmm. that one particular dumb person started. Because yeah. um, that's obviously ridiculous. But I I do think you know you go to see these movies and you're talking about people who. Like when I was a kid and I collected Marvel Comics trading cards, it gives you the power level of each character. So it has like strength and intelligence and all this stuff. And it's like almost Dungeons and Dragons type statistics on each character and how they compare to all the other characters. Right. And I think there's a tendency to take that extremely geeky um, stats oriented approach toward these new characters. Where do they fall in the hierarchy? Who's more powerful? Who's what are their capabilities? And that stuff is interesting to think about, and it's fun in like a video game or a Magic the Gathering type situation, but this is a movie, and all this stuff is not set in stone and certainly not locked in by previous movies. I mean, the idea that, well, Ray's force powers should be one particular thing, or she should go through this particular set process, because that's what another character did or several other characters Mm -hmm. did in previous movies. I mean, you're talking about this mythical, like all powerful force that runs through the whole galaxy or the universe. Uh, some character couldn't have unprecedented abilities with it, you know, or like use it more intuitively than characters have in the past. Like people are trying so hard to fit these movies into these, this very precise framework. And it's like, this is a fantasy movie and it's not necessarily going to play by the rules, which is why we're not talking about like midi chlorians or all the prequel stuff where it did try to quantify force stuff and it did try to like make it a little bit more scientific. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think that's a really good uh, way to look at it um, because once that, once that, that magic of watching it wears off, it's hard not to sort of stray into being picky about things. Right. And the, the thing is, like, we we wouldn't be looking at movies, a, a similar movie to this, with such a, a critical, meticulous eye if it wasn't Star Wars. Um, at least that's how I feel about it. Um, right. Well, and I think it's because the same things that cause you to go into it with such an emotional warmth for other people, it caused them to go on with extremely particular expectations. Mm -hmm. And so you and I can walk away from it being like, Oh my God, that pressed all my star Wars buttons. What a wonderful experience. Whereas other people were like, it didn't do the exact things I wanted a star Wars movie should do, or I believed it to be. And so it's like the dogmatic, it becomes dogmatic as opposed to 
uh, spiritual, you know? Right. Yeah. And plus you have, um, you know, I think that, I think that JJ Abrams did everything that he need, he needed to do and he did a fantastic job. Again, I really enjoyed the movie and I really want to see it again. Uh, hopefully I'm sure it'll be in the theaters for a while, but, um, when, when you're dealing with something like star Wars, which has such an enormous canon behind it. And then you basically take all of that emotional investment and say, this is no longer, this no longer counts. All of these things. And I know we've talked about this before, but all of these things that, have developed this world for you the fan that doesn't count anymore well i read that a lot of the ideas from the books did end up making their way into this movie okay um like the idea of like kylo ren uh as ben solo there's a there's a different solo offspring in the books who goes through like a similar journey Mm, okay so i think there were elements that are drawn into it i don't think it was totally abandoned right I guess it's just like it's it's hard to it's hard not to be meticulous about things when you've spent so long thinking about it and you've spent so long fleshing it out even just as 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 a fan you know like um even stuff that I think is as fun to think about like you know we have we have a whole a whole resistance trying to find Luke for the whole movie and they finally know exactly where he is and they send they send one person to go find that bothered me too (laughs) it's like where's the where's the entourage like why are you now trusting this person to just 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 goes out there with chewbacca all right good enough you know (laughs) i mean i guess if you do want to get nitpicky about this because it did bother me um well maybe there's the argument of if you send a bigger party it makes them easier to track Right. You know. Well, then, but why I mean, did... You could justify some of these things. But if Luke didn't want to be found, then why did he leave some very obvious clues as to where he is? You know? Right. Right. Um, yeah. And so. why just take that last chunk out of the map and just give it to somebody else and be like, eh, people put it in this guy. Or <laughs> <the map down." laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, when you really think about most of the plot points in this movie, they're very silly. Yeah. But it doesn't... It's, you know... But that's... that's I don't care. <laughs> that's the wonder of it, is... Yeah. When is the last time you watched a movie where you were like, literally just like, I don't care about that stuff. Every every movie that I've really enjoyed that has the same kind of scope as Star Wars, um, plot holes like that bother me, and they reduce the experience. This is. I mean, I feel this way about many of the Marvel movies, yeah. because I'm bringing that same sense of nostalgia and excitement to it mm-hmm. where I'm just excited to see these characters on a screen blowing things up, running around. Like that's what I paid to see. Yeah. I didn't pay to see, you know, a Shakespearean drama, right. you know, which is not to say that certain things don't bother me or that all these movies are great. Like there's good ones and bad ones, mm-hmm. but you know, I, I think as with anything, you have to weigh it on multiple levels and one level is plot one level is acting. One level is the the feeling you get when you watch it, you know, the visceral reaction. Mm-hmm. One level is the cinematography. So all these things, I think, unless something really bothers you and really ruins the movie for you, I mean, if it does, I, I feel like that's kind of a myopic way to look at this movie. Mm-hmm. And people who didn't like it, I mean, who are obsessing over plot or over these weird details, it's like, 
man, do you like anything? You know, yeah. like I don't like that argument of like, oh, go turn your brain off and just enjoy it, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, some movies are made to be visual spectacles or they're made to be their strength is in one area. Right. And if you deny that, then you are missing the point and you are not really engaging with it properly. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, I think that a lot of what you said uh, very much applies to the Hateful Eight. Yes. Speaking of like engaging with what the artist intended. So uh, one thing um, that you said, uh, which I think is very important to... So uh, back up. Um, Probably less people have seen The Hateful Eight than they've seen uh, Star Wars. And one of the great, great things about living in Portland is we live by a theater that has a 70 millimeter projector and um that is how the hollywood theater the hollywood theater that is how quentin tarantino shot the movie um and uh it is how if you have the chance to see it that way you should see it that way um it's you know it's not only is it is it big but it's the the sound is incredible uh it's just it's a very immersive experience to see it in 70 millimeter um, and it's super wide too. He didn't just shoot it in seventy, but he shot it in this crazy uh, wide format that hasn't been used in years and years. Yeah, so it's like it's huge. I mean, it's it's a it's a real experience. Um, and in fact, uh, of course, I saw this while we were I was I was on vacation, but uh, Quentin Tarantino just surprised surprise showed up one night at the Hollywood Theater last yeah, week. Yeah, we were you know we were talking about this. We went to go see it on. Uh, last Saturday in the morning and we were like man what if Quentin showed up here like we knew he had requested the theater to play it because uh, that was something that they talked about yeah um, you know he's on the west coast like maybe he would pop up why yeah. not uh, and so he you know just happened we went we went to the wrong day we went too early and he came up on Tuesday uh, but that's awesome that he did that yeah it is it is it is really awesome um, so uh, the there's a few things that you need to know about this, uh, listeners at home. One is that uh, it's the, it's his eighth movie, um, so therefore it makes sense that it's you know there's a lot of ideas of eight in this movie. Um, trans five mers. <laughs> this is like Quentin Tarantino's trans five mers. <laughs> uh, you know, they totally missed the the chance to do transformers. Did they? Yeah, yeah, they didn't. They totally do that. missed it. Yeah, they, they missed the chance. Um, Two on the nose. Like yeah. that's. It's crazy that that's like the line that Michael Bay refuses to cross. <laughs> We're not going to put a four in the title. <laughs> Too silly. Um, so the movie is uh, a brief synopsis. Um, it takes place uh, not too long after the Civil War ends. It takes place in Wyoming. Uh, during the winter, and um, basically Kurt Russell's character, uh, uh, something Ruth, I can't remember his name, um, has uh, a prisoner that he's taking to Red Rocks in Colorado to uh, have her hung. The, his prisoner is Daisy, Daisy Domergu, who has a $10,000 bounty on her head. So $10,000 is a shitload of money for 
the mid to late 1800s. It's a shitload of money now. Yeah, exactly. But yes. Even more so. A lot more. <clears throat> so, uh, he, so the movie starts, he's in a stagecoach with her. They meet up with Samuel Jackson, who is a, uh, who is now a bounty hunter as well, but he used to be in the, in the, uh, union army. Um, and he's also on his way to claim the bounty for some, some other folks that he's killed. Uh, a blizzard hits and they all get stuck in Minnie's haberdashery, um, where they meet a bunch of other people they don't know. And they basically spend most of the movie getting to know each other and a bunch of other crazy shit happens. What I loved about this movie, it's Quentin Tarantino's clue, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. It's like, uh, Mr. What's his name in the, in the closet. Right. With the, you know, it's like the whole thing is this murder, almost like this murder mystery thing. And this is like the silliest part of the movie. And I still am unsure why it would do this. It goes to intermission Mm -hmm. after this like incredible image that we should get to, but it goes to intermission and then it comes back and the movie gives you some voiceover and immediately scales back and said, okay, here are some things you missed in the first hour of this movie. And I'm just going to lay this out for you. So now you know what's going on and Mm -hmm. like do a little flashback and like reframe it as you, before, you know, before everything plays out right in the second half. That's, that's the only part of the movie that I can't explain is the voiceover. Um, And it's not one of the characters. No, it's just this random ghost voice. And it's just like, this feels like something too, like not cinematic enough for Tarantino to do and the fact that he's doing it is insane and I'm just going to go with it. Well, it's sort of like <clears throat> it's sort of like the uh in Inglorious Bastards when m- m- more than halfway through the movie Samuel L. Jackson just pops up to explain to you uh something about film in general like film canisters and film stock. Right. You know, like and it's just like where who the hell is this guy and where did he come from? And he doesn't appear again. It's just Quentin Tarantino doesn't feel the need to balance out scenes like that. He's just like, I think that I'm going to put in some narrator here. And you're more than halfway through the movie. Right. Um, but uh, so the another thing about this movie is it's probably the, the, the first movie done by Quentin Tarantino in a long time that has gotten really, really mixed reviews. And I think that, you know, that normally wouldn't matter um, except... Uh, a lot of people are taking issue with um certain parts of the movie now. Uh, like Dave, like we, we talked before we started recording, we both we both really really like that movie, like the movie a lot. So I I, I don't want to say it's a great movie. I will say I enjoyed it thoroughly. Yeah, uh, I think that my opinion of Quentin Tarantino, and this is I, I've heard some. I can't remember who said this, but I've heard someone uh, express this elsewhere, which is that. Uh, and we, we've we've talked about him before, and I think that I love him more than you do, but movies like um, Kill Bill <clears throat> and Inglorious Bastards are movies that I liked the first time I saw them, and then when I saw them again, I was like, wow, these are great, these are great movies. Um, it's like the things that I, I, I had some time to think about it, and I came back to it, and you really start to see what he's doing. 
Um, Kill Bill especially. Like I think that when I first saw oh, Kill that Bill. Oh, that movie is a masterpiece. Yeah, when I first saw Kill although when I first saw Kill Bill, I was like, I feel like this is just like a, a, a clusterfuck. I'm not really sure what's going on. And then when I revisited it, maybe like a year or two later, I was like, wow, this, yeah, this is an amazing movie. But um, uh, the movie is sometimes gratuitously violent. Uh, oh, it, I mean, it's unbelievably gratuitously violent. Well, but there's long, long stretches of nonviolence. There's right. just, there's, it's, 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 there are some really gross parts, but um, it's also uh, uh, the one woman. Well, there's there's more than one one woman character, but uh, there's a lot of violence towards women in the in the movie, um, and there is a lot of the n word in the movie. Um, right. Which, if but you I, saw if you saw Django Unchained, is something that you know is 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 not exactly new for Tarantino. Well, here's I mean here's the thing. You can sort of. I didn't want to think that hard about this movie. I don't feel like I need to walk away from this movie having 2000 words of, you know, opinion about it. Right. But the, what I will say about all these potentially problematic issues that people are now grousing about, those are totally fair uh, assessments. But I do think, you know, the use of the N word, the violence toward, uh, toward Daisy you know, Daisy is revealed as a much more, uh, as a character with much more depth than we initially see. Uh, the N word mm -hmm. feels gratuitous, but then you get this like incredibly intricate, um, interplay of like black and white hostilities and like the, the scars of the civil war and all this stuff. And, you know, Samuel L. Jackson is given the full opportunity to defend himself and oh, yeah. to, have some form of revenge or of defense or whatever. And so it's not just like punching down. It's not just, I mean, the movie appears, the word appears a lot in the movie mm -hmm. and that alone, I can understand why someone would be like unacceptable, gratuitous, disgusting. Mm -hmm. But in the context of the movie, I think it is used purposefully. Oh yeah. Um, it, you know, obviously as a white person, I'm going to be less inclined to walk out after 20 minutes. Right. You know? Um, so I, I think, you know, wherever people come down on that, you know, that's up to them. That's, that's personal. It's fine. But I yeah. do think it's not just there for shock. Uh, no. I do think, he's, <clears throat> I do think he's trying to do something in this movie. And I thought it was actually more effective than Django, which I was pretty bored by and found just kind of predictable and, wish fulfillmenty in a way that this movie is not this movie really kept me guessing the whole time yeah. and i thought it was just as an interesting storyline with interesting characters mm -hmm. going through this crazy situation uh i thought it was totally gripping and fascinating yeah uh i mean quentin tarantino can tell a story uh for sure so i think that um and i i only saw it last night uh, but I've been thinking about it a lot, and Rebecca and I were talking about it quite a bit last night. Um, I think that uh, okay. Well, I'll start from the beginning. First of all, the movie starts um, once you get past the overture, which is just a cool thing because Ennio Morricone did did the soundtrack. Oh, which is which is so good, which is fantastic. And so there's like this ten minute overture of just his music, which is just beautiful, and then the movie starts. Um, 
And it starts by saying the eighth movie by Quentin Tarantino. Now, the the only reason that you would say that is if, you know, that that doesn't matter unless you're considering his body of work. And I think that he wants you to do that. And it's the same way with Star Wars. Like, you don't watch The Force Awakens without being totally aware of the Star Wars as a as a universe as a, and as a canon. Oh, yeah. I mean, this absolutely exists in the Quentin universe. And right. it's incredibly self important in that way yeah and so you have this idea where quentin from the beginning he's basically saying like remember remember what i did before and what did he do before but he's had like his probably like you know once you get past pulp fiction even jackie brown a little bit they're all revenge fantasies and on top of that revisionist history revenge fantasies um so you have this idea that like especially with Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained, you empathize with this character finally getting to do something that maybe that that character wouldn't otherwise be able to do in history, especially with Inglorious Bastards. Um and you know, killing basically just like slaughtering all of the, the Nazi uh leadership. And this movie is not a revenge fantasy. And it's not a revisionist history. It's basically saying, like, remember all those things that I did before? It's going to be a lot harder to do that now. Because one of the first interactions is you have Daisy Domergue saying the N-word to Samuel L. Jackson. And then just like, oh, that shit, that's gross. And then Kurt Russell, like, cold cocks her with a pistol. And you're like, that's fucked up. I don't know. Well, Jackson punches her out of the wagon. Yeah. And then later, and then later he punches her out of the wagon and you're like, I don't know. Like, these are all fucking terrible people. I don't know. I can't empathize or empathize with any of these people. I don't know who to identify with. Um, and, and Quentin Tarantino really, really messes around with that. And he's just basically just like, if you think that you're going to identify with any of these characters, you're going to be, sorely shocked by what this character turns out to be. Right. So much so that by the end of the movie, after like, just like brutality, uh, the movie basically ends on an, and I don't think this is really a spoiler, but the movie basically ends on the idea that the only thing that ties us together as human beings is hate. That, after the Civil War, the scars of the Civil War, we're still feeling them today. And I think that it makes, I think for that movie to come out in 2015, I think is appropriate in a lot of ways. Right. Well, I mean, it has this message that you have these two guys on opposite sides of the fight, um, you know, as, as opposite as they can possibly be, mm-hmm. who end up teaming up uh, against a common enemy. So it says it has this sort of moral of you only you you solve violence with violence towards someone else. Yeah, you know it's like the um, the thing I always go back to thinking about this kind of stuff is the, the historical example of the Greeks, the Greek civilizations banding together to fight against the bigger Persian army. Mm-hmm. You know, otherwise before that they'd had all this infighting and they went back and forth for years, and all of a sudden you had this they had a common enemy. And you see that idea pop up in sci-fi a lot, like in Asimov oh, yeah. and so on, mm-hmm. where that's like a, you know, 
all these all these sci-fi writers of the 20th century like looked back at the Roman Empire and the Greeks and so on as like for ideas of how to bring those ideas into space civilizations and it's this idea of like well why can't we just have the Star Trek utopia where humans just decide to get along because for a higher purpose you know and Tarantino absolutely rejects that oh yeah it's it's um it's a mean and an angry movie and it's obvious that he is pissed off um rightfully so and th- here's a here this is a spoiler but i want to mention this um you know the the through line through the movie is um samuel jackson's character's uh letter from abraham lincoln which <laughs> is about halfway through proven to be totally made up that he just wrote it himself Mm -hmm. and the letter is very much about racial harmony like hand in hand we'll we'll get through this together you know me the white president and you the former slave um and the movie in the end is basically just like that's bullshit that is it's never going to be like that there's no such thing as that is harmony the only thing that will bind us together is hate a common enemy violence right that's when which we'll come which in this movie um is chosen as a woman right which i can see why some people would say well that's anti-feminist or whatever mm-hmm. um although you could argue well why should it be a male criminal why can't the woman be just as evil and and hateful and um murderous as any of these guys you know so it's you know you could sort of argue it either way i i wasn't personally bothered by uh, her character or her treatment. No, because her character is pretty deplorable. But, I mean, all the characters in this movie are deplorable. <clears throat> right. Um, that's the only thing that I'm kind of, like, that I'm not really sure about is why the common enemy is this woman, you know. Although there there are other women in the movie, um, and they are innocents. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and pretty disgustingly taken care of or murdered but um yeah i thought that it's like i thought that in order to i think i i probably will revisit this movie eventually and i might eventually think like it's towards the top of his movies not just as like enjoyable but as like a very prescient movie for our time yeah, I think it's one of his better movies. I think it absolutely has a a modern social commentary, which he doesn't always uh, include. For a guy who's like pretty much just like really good at doing like a extended homage, you know. Right. Yeah. So it has that. I think it's just visually really impressive, like just on a technical level. Yeah. Um. I mean, the one thing is that you have you spend most of the movie in this cabin, and you don't get to really relish the power of 70 millimeter although i do think the the super wide close-ups are amazing um there's a lot of shots in the cabin that are just stunning but it's like it would have been nice to have a few more minutes of sweeping (laughs) vistas you know so it's sort of almost like he's teasing the audience in a way that he's like well i'm using the film format best suited for outdoor shooting and i'm gonna stick you in a cabin because i'm quentin tarantino and so the movie is it's like very prideful it's very much like the voiceover is the same thing. Like, yeah. I'm going to tell you, you're watching a movie and it's a Quentin Tarantino movie. I'm going to have this voiceover. And like, you know, it's, it's, it feels very much like him at the height of his, not necessarily his powers, but like his control, 
Yeah. You know, and that's a really interesting aspect of it. And I think the revealing of that makes it more interesting than a movie like Django, which felt just like very straightforward, you know, mm. pretty, pretty much what you would expect from him. And this movie is much more like him asserting himself, I guess, and not just kind of um, doing what you would want him to do. Well, it's also the first movie. I can't remember if he's in Jackie Brown, but it's the first movie that he's not in. Hmm. You know, like that he didn't pull a Hitchcock, you know, because he was in Django Unchained. He right. was in, I think he's in, an, I can't remember if he's in, an, I don't, maybe he's not in Inglorious Bastards, but he's in Pulp Fiction, obviously. He might be in Jackie Brown, remember? Yeah, I don't remember. I think he's in Kill Bill somewhere. Um, yeah, no, I think that, like, it's obvious that he knows what he's doing as far as, um being prideful and i think that there's an interview where he basically was just like i'm i'm the best at what i do right now right well and that's something we talked about before it's like there's there's the danger of that is no one can tell you when you screw up you know and especially when you have made eight movies and people tend to have better ideas in their youth you know more often than not Mm -hmm. uh and so you get to this point where you feel like you really know what you're doing but then you also are sort of hemmed in by your experience and you're not necessarily thinking as creatively so i was really happy that this movie was so twisty in the plot and Mm -hmm. really like all the way to the end i was like how is this movie going to end yeah and so just from that perspective i thought it was fantastic but what i really did walk away from it feeling was man does quentin tarantino have any other ideas besides bloodbaths just like besides sheer violence like why has he played out his movies like this over and over and over like what about a nice quiet romantic drama you know like why does it always have to end in bloodshed well you could say that he just doesn't want to he just doesn't want to do that you know, it's like, but why? Why? Like, what? What kind of person? Because he impresses himself so deeply on this movie. It's a Quentin Tarantino movie. Yeah. Why does he go back to this basically kind of conclusion or kind of idea every single time? Like, why is he so obsessed with death and violence, just as a human being? Well, I think that. Um, well, because okay, a few things. <clears throat> One is I think that he is still very much a movie fan and, you know, the the movies that he loves the most are movies like this, are action genre films. Um, You know, not not to say that he doesn't love like a, like Claire's Knee or something like that, but um, something like slow and dreamy. But at the same time, I think that he, you could say more about the idea that, you know, why are, why are we as a human race obsessed with violence and death? Um, because we are, you know? Well, um, I mean, it's the most dramatic thing, right? right? It's the highest point you can escalate. Um, but I guess the question to me is like, you know, it's not the whole scope of the human experience and there are other stories to be told. And it's just like, it seems like for someone to go back to that every single time, it's like that must signify something about their personality, you know, or, or maybe not. Well, I, I'm I don't sure. expect, I don't expect there to be an answer to this, yeah. but it's what I came away wondering, like what is going on? What goes on in this person's head when they are not making movies? Well, yeah. And I think that's a very valid thought. I mean, you could, uh, there's probably more 
there's more obvious answers in other filmmakers who do the exact same thing, like Woody Allen, for example. Like, why does Woody Allen always have, like, basically all of his movies are kind of about the same thing, and it's like, what is going through his head? It's like, pff, I think it's pretty clear what's going through his head, but um, I think it, you know, and it's, I would love to see Quentin Tarantino do a quiet drama, and he might. I mean, he might take it as a challenge. You or know? like a Pixar movie. Right. You know, or I don't know. It's like you see someone like uh, Christopher Nolan saying, I'm going to make a sci-fi movie now, mm-hmm. you know, um, which I mean, to be fair, all his movies are kind of about the same stuff anyway. It's yeah. like emotional connections writ large onto this like huge dramatic whatever. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. It was just. I just I just walked away from it feeling like, man. This is an obsessive person. Not that I didn't feel that way before, but it's just like, all right, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that's true. Like, it's, you know, I do hope that he challenges himself. Not that he isn't challenging himself, because I think that The Hateful Eight is a very masterful movie in so many ways. Um, yeah, I mean, I think he gave himself a couple challenges. One was, how do I write? this essentially sort of uh board game mystery or how do i how do i like weave this put all these pieces together and lay it all out in a way that will uh keep the keep everyone guessing and i think especially with the intermission and the scene right after where it tells you point blank Mm -hmm. okay pay attention now you know that's him trying to really purposefully guide you through this movie and make sure you don't miss anything Mm -hmm. um so i think that was one challenge he gave himself and the other is shooting a 70 millimeter movie in a cabin right you know and saying here's this thing that could be so easy to go out and get beautiful things with and i'm going to get you know ugly things and try and make an amazing movie out of it right it's you know and that's and that's the bigger challenge for him because i think in a lot of ways um you know, watching this, I was most reminded of Reservoir Dogs, which has kind of the same kind of idea to it, where it's just, you know, there's kind of a who done it, like who's, you know, who betrayed who, or who who betrayed whom, and, um, you know, who's the cop, and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, yeah, I would like to see him, if he, and I believe that he is, if he is the caliber of filmmaker that he very openly says he is, then I want to see him make a very, very different movie. One that isn't like an homage to a movie that he loves. Or maybe it is, but it's like more of like a Bergman film than it is like a, a you know, a Sergio Leone movie. You know? Right, right. Um, and I mean, one thing that uh, someone we saw the movie with said was, you know, this was not a Western. It's set in that setting. It looks like a Western, yeah. but it doesn't really do anything a Western would do. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I love that. I, he, he he knows his genres so well that he can very, very openly play with them, um, which is, I think, really fun. Um, uh, you know, and I was. it's weird because I was thinking, talking about like Woody Allen or Quentin Tarantino or even J.J. Abrams, people who basically make the same kinds of movies over and over and they get really, really good at it. Uh, and you, they become masters of the form or of their genre. But that made me think of, um, 
Steven Spielberg for some reason, partly because I think J.J. Abrams is sort of like the new Spielberg in a lot of ways, but um, he's a director who was making these sort of like adventure, adventure movies and is now making like serious historical dramas. Right. And he's just as good as that at those as he is at making like E.T. or um, Temple of Doom or... Um, uh, Jaws, you know, right? Like. No, I, you're totally right. And I think when we look back at the great directors, like, I think he gets a lot of uh blame for the blockbuster era. But I mean, he's clear, he's this guy who's been incredibly capable at moving between those two worlds and making these really pretty much perfect, you know, accessible middle brow movies. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um which I really I haven't seen Bridge of Spies, but I've actually heard really good things about it. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it either, but I I've heard I've also heard good things. Yeah. Um uh I don't have anything more to say about the Hateful Eight. Yeah. Um, no, I think we can we can wrap it up and anticipate uh the PLL flash forward next week. Yep. Uh which is I don't know are they are they staying on Tuesday nights? Are, I think so. Are they moving, coming back to Tuesday. Freeform. Yeah, it's not ABC Family anymore. Freeform. Family's over. <laughs> yeah, this is this isn't this isn't for all ages anymore. This is for adults doing adult things. Or for tweens. Yeah, it's for tweens. Now this is this is about the liars much more openly drinking now. Well, we'll see. <laughs> no, I think so. Isn't one of the, like the first scenes we saw of like Hannah sitting on a plane enjoying a a cocktail? Sure, an adult beverage. Yeah, because <laughs> they're adults now with with adult relationships. Well, we'll see. We'll see how adult it gets. I I am very curious to see how the tone and like the level of the maturity of the comeback because they can't change too much. They can't like do a total reboot of it, you know, because the yeah. audience stays the same, but you know, everyone's a few months older and you know, uh, kids who may not have maybe went to their first high school party and ready to see some darker things go down. on pretty little liars. Kids these days, they grew up so quickly. Well there, I mean, I'm sure everyone watching the show is like a hundred times more savvy than we were when we were 12 years old or 13 or whatever. Yeah. Well, they've been on Instagram. You can't look back. I know so much accessibility. Uh, I I feel a lot older than when it was revealed that Charlotte was a. I I feel I feel like an older person. Oh, we've aged we've, we've hundreds aged. of years <laughs> in the in the interim. We're becoming real adults. It's true. It's true. We are uh, with with spouses and 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 homes and responsibilities responsibilities and yeah. moving forward yeah well i'm glad that we find the time every week or so to do this podcast and indulge ourselves we make it sound so much fun to be an adult oh yeah <laughs> it's okay it's fine i want to go to i i'm gonna go to fuck this I'm, I'm not doing this podcast anymore i'm gonna go to fashion school in europe okay well hey this is the last episode then <laughs> peace out everybody look for my new fall line or spring spring line yeah, no, probably fall line. I need some time. <laughs> I need to I need to finish my studies first. Um, 
So thanks for joining us again in this sort of new season of Pretty Little Grown Men. Yeah, next week, season something. Yeah, this is like the unofficial season premiere. This is like, uh, I don't know. the twenty. Well, it's the 2016 premiere. Okay, yeah. Welcome. Welcome to 2016 with new microphones and, oh, uh, new beer sponsors, which is, uh, once again, our unofficial beer sponsor because they haven't given us any money. This time it's from New Belgium. I was drinking their Snow Day Winter Ale, uh, which is pretty decent. Um, New Belgium out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, Dave didn't drink anything. It was just me. Um, and so, uh, if you would like to um, sponsor us, New Belgium, get a hold of us. We're or, on t- or whoever. Yeah, really. Whoever would like to sponsor. I us. mean, really, like if you're like, I don't, I don't know, and anyone, anyone willing to give us money, it doesn't matter. <laughs> really, it really doesn't matter. Um, you can find us on Twitter at PLGM Podcast. Or you can find us on iTunes. Um, and if you give us a star rating, that would be really great. Hopefully a high star rating and not a low star rating. Also, if you want to give us a review, we take those to heart. We do. We read every one. We take all, them extremely all, all. personally. <laughs> all like 17 of them or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I haven't checked it in a, in a while. No, but. I haven't either. We may have some new ones. Oh, my God. But really, if you li- if you listen to us and you want us to keep doing this, um, it doesn't take that much effort to go to iTunes and star us. Uh, there's a lot of other people starting to do what we do. Um, in fact, I just was we were just followed on Twitter by a new podcast called Gossip Guys. Ah, uh, more more of this, like <laughs> you know, it's good. It's you know good what the world needs, Dave. You know what the world needs more of white male perspectives (laughs) but i i well good point but i do think it is good for the normalization of men talking about things that were considered to be feminine Mm -hmm. and so on obviously we don't need men talking about anything really but (laughs) we weren't talking about this thing and that was bad that we weren't so it's good that we are even though, yeah, you get the idea. I totally, I hear you. Uh, even though, of course, the we were before the Gilmore Guys dudes, and yet they're coming to Portland on a tour date, and they're gonna play at this play. I mean, whatever, whatever it is they do. talk. They're, they're talk. They're going to talk at this like six hundred capacity venue in Portland, which is wild. I know it's wild. I I hate them with a fury, but also I have to commend them for uh, blowing up like that. I I'm kind of curious as to how they do this. Like what 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 are we not doing? Not to not to air grievances, but I mean that's a serious question towards our our listeners. Do you is it just that you want us to like recap full episodes? Do you want us to like go line by line? Do you want I to... I think it has nothing to do with that. I think it's that one of them was already like a plugged in social media person. And then they got this Atlantic article and then they, you know, once you are at a certain level, things just snowball mm. and accelerate. And I mean, the the fact that the show had popped up on Netflix, so it was sort of buzzy. Uh, and it also has a wider appeal, I think, than Pretty Little Liars, which is really just for tweens or just watched by tweens. Yeah, I think we need to try a little harder to get interviews on here. We could do that. I mean, yeah, I guess we could. 
But I, I just I think it's just much more fun to just be like, hey, let's record a podcast tonight. And then yeah. We, and then we do it. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot easier. Well, you know, someday we'll sell out the Aladdin Theater. I don't think the show's sold out yet. So, you know, maybe there's hope. Maybe there's a few people in Portland who don't give a shit. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening. Um, and until next time, help us sell out, bitches. <laughs>